0: the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. May the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, Amen. Father James has been doing a wonderful job bringing the words of St. John of Kronstadt to us about our role in the vocation of the kingdom of priests. And much of what he has been bringing to the table has been what I consider the the first motion of two motions in our vocation as a kingdom of priests. Much of what he's been bringing to the table is how we come, actually both of us have brought to the table in a way, is how that in the liturgy, always remember this, I will not get tired of saying this, the liturgy defines our entire salvation, the liturgy manifests Everything in the Christian life and the way that our Lord is saving our souls and bringing Him to Himself and introducing us to paradise and manifesting His kingdom on earth. Okay, We've said that many times, and I'll never stop saying it um, because sometimes the truth has to keep working in us for our hearts to open up to, to experience the wonder of the presence of God and His kingdom with us in the liturgy and how it shows us our true selves, And it also shows us and helps define the very ministry of the kingdom of priests that Christ has ordained himself for himself. And so we have been looking that in the liturgy, when we come in to the nave, we've talked about this extensively. We face east and facing east is for a particular reason. It is setting our faces toward paradise. But there's also a reason within our facing east and seeing the kingdom of God open up to us and Christ upon his altar and upon his throne right in front of us that is very telling about our vocation as a kingdom of priests because it shows us that there in the nave, in between the world and in between Christ our God, here we stand interceding like we even talked about two weeks about, about the role of intercession and intercessory prayer as the kingdom of priests. We come to liturgy by the divine invitation of the Lord our God, and he invites us literally to come and fellowship with him. Come, be with me, and I will fellowship with you. I will sit at table with you, and I invite you to come and sit at table with me. Come and receive from me absolutely everything, everything, that you need for your salvation, because everything for you need for your salvation is me. And I'm gonna give you my entire self in this time that we're together. But then also, based on what we talked about with intercession two weeks ago, the, really one of the most unbelievable things, as if all of it doesn't blow our minds, it's the invitation of Christ, come and pray with me. I didn't say come and pray to me alone. Come and pray with me. Christ is our great high priest. He is the celebrant of the liturgy. And we join with him in his intercessory prayers for one another and for the life of the world when we gather together. In that, again, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that mediatorship and that advocacy on behalf of one another's souls, our own souls, and that of the world. And this is what Father James has been speaking to us about regarding going before God, representing Again, our souls, one another's, and this world representing the world before God when we come and face him. And so we ascend the mountain to face God as he faces us. We set our souls eastward to ascend to paradise as he condescends westward to come to us right where we are. That is the absolute beauty of the gospel procession. Where does the gospel procession start? at the altar, in the eternal. And it comes down right in the midst of us, right where we are. This is something that will speak volumes to us every time we see it. Jesus, in this time, has both come to me and brought me up to him. Same motion, all at the same time. But one of the things that we need to understand is that is the one movement, our coming in and facing east. And although the second movement of ours in the liturgy, the time frame in the mass is much less than our facing east. Don't let that confuse it. it is an equally important movement. As we come to face God and receive everything from him, our last movement is to turn and to take everything that we have received and face west. And we go out. And we go out to self-offer everything of Christ that he has given us. As we have come to represent the world to God during the liturgy, we leave to represent God to this world in our very lives. And they are equal. I don't even want to say too different. That's the entirety of what it means to be the kingdom of priests. To come to bring the world in intercessions. To receive from God and then to deliver what we've received and to make manifest in our own lives that which we've received into this world. You know, it reminds me, one of the first tastes I got of this was 20-something years before I even looked at the historic faith. And it was in college when I went on on a, a spiritual retreat with a group that I was involved in. And we went to this beautiful place in the rolling hills of Tennessee. And when you drove up to the place and you drove in it was a ranch... So you have one of those ranch gate entrances and they had the big banner on the top, you know, permanent banner that they had carved into wood. And when you entered to go into the ranch, it said, we enter to worship. And then when you left on the backside of carved into the wood, now depart to serve. You see, depart to be who you've been remade to be. Come and receive, come and be transformed in your soul in your person, and the likeness of Christ, and go out to deliver. You see, go be Christ to all those who are around you. And I'm going to tell you this, you can't have one without the other. It is an impossible task to represent Christ our God to the world if we have not first faced him in Authenticity if we have not first faced him and offered him our brokenness and been touched by his healing, what testimony is our life? Only the testimony of intellect. Because I know things about Christ. But when we face Christ and we let Christ heal our lives, oh, the intellect is, is just is this much. Now it's a living testimony of healing. I was this. I am now this. You see? And this is what we're to do, and this is what we want to look at today. How do, we now, how do we represent God to this world? Because there's a lot of confusion in Christianity about what constitutes representing God, especially in our nation, and especially in our nation during these days. So to talk about this in closing to our understanding of who we are as this kingdom of priests is imperative. It's imperative because Christ wants to be manifest for who he really is, not who we think he is. And the only way salvation is going to happen and the kingdom of God is to be manifest through every living stone and through his church is if we only represent who he is and never represent who he's not. And we have got to lock into this. And that's an You can see why this would be an impossible task if I don't know him. If I've not let my life be given over in fellowship and let the healing touch of Christ come into my life so that I know his nature... And because of that healing of my soul, I am becoming his nature to be manifest to all. And I want to start by acknowledging that we see this both ascension and dissension, going to face God and bringing the people as far as before God in intercession and departing the presence of God to go and represent God to the people. I can't even count how many times in the Old Testament we're shown this. And we don't have time to go into a lot of examples. I'm only going to use one, and that is blessed Moses. We can't escape seeing this with him. You know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about Moses as being both a type of Christ, which also means a type of us, in the way that he was an intercessor before God, standing between God and the people, bringing the troubles, the disturbances, the sins of the people before God and then going back down from the mountain to represent God back to man. And we see this very beautifully in the one that we mentioned so often here, and I think most everyone knows, but let's really look at it for what it was. And I take you back to the story of that first calling to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. God called Moses to ascend Mount Sinai as a representative of the people. He went up on behalf of God's people to be with God, not to think about God, he went up the mountain by the invitation of his creator to be with his creator. And so he ascends that mountain. And we know what the top of that mountain looked like when he ascended. It scared the people because of the glory and the radiance and the thunderous presence of God who had condescended. As Moses ascended, God had condescended to join him on the top of that mountain. You see? At that point, Moses is fellowshipping with God. If you look at that whole scenario, you hear God talk to Moses, Moses talk to God, you hear the story of God taking his finger and writing his law on the stone right in front of Moses' face and then giving him those blessed tablets. Moses went up to be with God, God came down to be with Moses, And Moses was transfigured by the experience. Not only did he, where he received the law in tablets, never forget, we've received the law by the Holy Spirit. But Moses received that law and he took it and his being was transformed. So much so that when he came down to Aaron, before he got to the people, When he came down to Aaron, Aaron said, you're glowing. He didn't even, Moses didn't even know that he had been transfigured by the presence of the Lord. And I will tell you this, perhaps that speaks to us of the humility we ought to have always. To be in the presence of the Lord, to know that our lives are being perfected, but people will never know that we understand it. People see a humility in us the constant need for God in us. Maybe that speaks to that. But Moses beheld God and remember he had to cover, he had to veil his face because the people would have been afraid of him if he was glowing, right? From the radiance of the glory of God when he descended. But descend nonetheless, he did with that veiled face. So Moses descends from his experience and delivers to the people what he had received. That's his representation of God to man, St. Paul, after referencing this very event, taught this reality regarding the Christian life, salvation, and our role of representing God all around us when he wrote the second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 3, and you know this verse, where Moses, when, when Paul, after talking about that event with Moses, says, but we, he's saying like Moses, right? But we with unveiled face. We're not going to veil our faces, but we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of God. And I I just, again, I want to describe that just a little bit. Again, when we come to liturgy, we go face to face with God. We face him. He comes and faces us. That's why you note that the priest, the only time the priest, the celebrant, faces you is when he's talking to you because the priest, it's a hierarchy of equals in the Orthodox faith. The priest is in need of facing God and offering to God. He is of the kingdom of priests. He's just leading us up the mountain. You see? He is not God. No matter what my wife will tell you, I said that out loud. (laughs) Because she's in another building, I said that out loud. Like she, doesn't have you know what she, she is the reason for my humility. <laughs> As it should be. As it should be. But St. Paul is saying that. He's saying that when we face God, it's like in a mirror. And part of the reason he's saying that is our doctrine. He's giving us the revealed truth that when we see God, we're seeing our most true self because we were created to be in his image and grow in his likeness. And so to see him in the mirror and now from that experience, we're growing in that image, you see, from glory to glory being transformed every time we do so, whether, and please note this, I'm talking about the liturgy, but you gotta understand, it's every face-to-face meeting we have with God, which is most certainly the hub of that, The peak of that is in the liturgy, but it's also in the prayer services of the church, and it's also in the church that is your homes. Every time you face God in prayer, you are going up, you are ascending to face him, and he is condescending to be with you that you might be changed and that you might then go and represent him. And that's what St. Paul is saying, we with unveiled faces, not like Moses did, but now that we've been transformed and the nature of God, and the glory of God is being shown and manifest through us, we're not covering it. We must go down from that experience. We must condescend now, as God condescends to us, to represent God to the world, and only God in the world, not the way we think we the things should be done, not the way we think things should be said, not the way we think the truths of God should be expressed, but literally to be him and show the world his true nature. It's the only hope of the world's change. It's the only hope of the world's salvation is that we represent God in that manner. So, you know, in fact, one of the uh, there's, there's a saint that always comes to my mind, and I know why he does, because I pray, I ask him to pray for us every time before we have uh, mass. And that's our blessed Saint Herman, who we have relics of, Saint Herman of Alaska. His testimony is he spent such authentic time in fellowship with God all of his days, facing, him and God, face, facing God and God facing him, that when the natives of Alaska, which he was a missionary to, That the natives of Alaska, when they went and looked upon him and spent time with him, they they knew they weren't spending time with a man. They were spending time with Christ. Because the virtues of Christ were so manifest in this blessed man. And the only way that can happen is by his fellowship with Jesus. And the natives would testify of this. And so many baptisms happened because people encountered Christ through St. Herman himself and I love for him to pray for us in this manner. So, let's talk about this being representatives of God before the world as his kingdom of priests. You know, the great majority of the role of Christian of Christians representing God to this world is accomplished far more by the way we live among men and women and far less by what we have to say to them. Okay? far more in the way that we just simply live our lives among men. And then when the Holy Spirit gives words at the appropriate time and season, then those words have the potential to spring about a harvest of life in the person or people that we're speaking to. But only as he leads, only as he leads. I think before did we go any further discussing what it means to represent God before man, you know, there's two ways to, to understand things. There's two ways to grasp truths. One is by simply revealing what they should be. So, for example, how should we be representatives of God? But the other way to learn how we should manifest God in our lives is to look at how we should not manifest God in our lives. We can learn from both. Okay, And there is something that has been greatly on my heart when I've thought about this, and that is we need to look at a warning to us all again through the life of blessed Moses. We need to grasp this. And so I go back to Moses where I started with. And I go, I, we're going to go to chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. But a little setup before we go there. Okay, There's a previous time before we get to Numbers 20. There's a previous time as God's people are traversing the wilderness that they become extraordinarily almost, I mean, literally almost passing out in the wilderness from thirst because they have not had anything to drink in numerous days. And if there's anything one needs to survive, it's less food and more water to survive another day. And they were really on the brink of death. Now, these God's people, God bless them, they are raising up in rebellion towards Moses because they're, they feel like they're going to die. And they're about to stone Moses, we're told. And what does Moses do? He goes to face God. He goes into the tabernacle. And he represents the people before God saying, this is what's going on. This is their need, Lord. And now listen, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, as he's there in the tabernacle, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod, which was his staff, with which you struck the river when he turned it into blood, and go. Listen to what he says. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. I want you to note something here. We know this story. Moses, God tells him, go strike the rock. He strikes the rock, out comes the water. We ignore that one line. God's saying, I'm going to be standing on that rock in front of you. So when you go to represent me to the people, I'm in the very place, and I'm the one that's going to do what I've said I would do. Moses didn't cause water, we know this, Moses didn't cause water to happen even in his obedience to God. He was simply invited to cooperate with the living God for the saving work of God on behalf of mankind, his people. We've got to see this. When we come and face God, when we turn away to go in the world, we remember something, oh and lo, I'll be with you always. So that as we are manifesting God to the world, God is standing on the rock and doing every good work through us for the benefit of the salvation of man through us. You see that? I don't think I never paid attention to that one little thing until I went over it and over it again. It was amazing to see the reality of God before each one of us as we're out in the world and trying to live a life you know, in love and obedience to our Heavenly Father. But we see this happening. Now, let's go to Numbers chapter 22. That's the setup. Because in Numbers chapter 20, we see the same scenario. And this is much later, getting very close to when they would come to the Jordan and actually cross over after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness by the judgments of God. So in Numbers chapter 20, God's people once again have become extremely thirsty, and of course, God's people once again, they rise up and complain in their desperation for water, once again threatening Moses, ah, the joys of Christian leadership and leading God's people. (laughs) Humanity upon humanity, but this time we need to look at the humanity in Moses, Because that's what we're going to see on display here. God's people once again become thirsty. They rise up and they complain in desperation. And once again, Moses goes into the tabernacle to face God. And God once again tells him the same thing. Go and take this rod. And I want you to go and strike this rock. But now listen to the different result. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them. Listen to these words. Here now, you rebels, must we bring, must we bring water from the side of the rock for you? Then Moses lifted up his hand. He didn't just strike the rock, he struck it twice. And water came out abundantly. God was faithful, despite Moses, which you will see in a minute. And the congregation and their animals all drank to the full. But then the Lord called Moses to the tabernacle with Aaron. And he said, because you did not believe me, to show me, here's the representation. Since you did not believe me, to show me to be holy and hallowed in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you will not bring the assembly into the land. That I promised them. Moses, just before they would get to the Jordan, where he could see the promised land from the mountain he was still on, Moses would die in the wilderness and would not lead God's people into the promised land. And why? Because Moses, he didn't represent God. In fact, the opposite, he misrepresented God to man. When the people complained, come on, let's, let's get into his humanity because you and I are just like this. Let's not play games. Moses, after 40 years with these people, right? How many times did they rise up against God? How many times did they rise up against him in their lack of faith? Moses had become thin. He'd become thin. And this particular time, When they came in such anger towards him in desperation, what he did is when he went out from the tabernacle, he manifested to them something God was not. He manifested anger and judgment. You rebels? You rebels. And he strikes the rock twice in anger, manifesting his anger. But the reality is God still wasn't angry with his people. God wanted to show himself to be the long-suffering God that he was and the God of provision that he would make for them through the water. You see this? What do we gain from this in being representatives of our God to this world, particularly in an increasingly godless part of the world? And I don't believe that's going to change in the near future. So we better grasp some of this. Here's one of the things we need to glean. It is not enough to know the truth. It is not enough to have all of the truths of Christianity, which is our Orthodox faith. It is not enough to know them nor is it enough to simply communicate the intellectual truths and what is right and what is wrong and what is harmful to man and what is blessed. It's not enough to communicate them and to know them. The communication and the knowledge of the truth have to be representative of the nature of God to man. Who he is towards them at any given moment. And I will tell you in this last age, and you see it in Christ, you see it in the behavior of the apostles, our Lord Jesus Christ set his face to save the world that's broken. And of course, he detests the sin. That's why he wants to save them. His heart is to bring them into his fold, not demolish them. And of course, the damage of people's souls in God's detesting this, there is a righteous anger in God, and yet at the same time, in his long suffering, he wants to bring them into his fold, always bring him into his fold. So even when God communicates the truths about this is sin, this is killing you, it is with his spirit to bring into himself not Moses' anger because he was sick of both how they're living out there and how that might impact me. A lot of the things and dangers we can fall into as a Christian people is really an issue of control and controlling things in the fear of, okay, if this world is growing increasingly, increasingly godless, and by the time, our, by the way, our area is growing increasingly godless, Our nation is growing increasingly godless. And it's not the first time that a nation has grown increasingly godless in the period of Christianity or any other period, you see. A lot of times we're responding to the world from our fears and our angst. This is not the nature of God. God is not afraid of the world. You see this. God is not anxious about the world's doings. God wants a people to be gathered into himself that he can share himself with and they can go and turn from him and demonstrate his nature so that more can come out of those things. You see? You're catching the difference. You've got to be careful. You know, as a, as a husband, as a father, as a priest, I have, and I need to, I, I, it needs to grow, but I have a fear in me of misrepresenting God to any of what I just named to you. I have that fear because I see, the, A, the importance. The reality is, if we misrepresent the nature of God, even in the expression of his revealed truths, if we misrepresent the nature of God, guess what? You have just pushed people further away from God with his very truth. Because intellectual knowledge of truth is not what's going to draw a person. The experience of Christ is going to bring them into his kingdom. And so it's not enough to say the truth, to speak the truth. It must be lived and spoken from the nature of God that we know and are becoming. You see? And there's a great danger both to them and the world and also to ourselves. Listen. Know this, we see it in Moses, when we misrepresent God to the world. When we misrepresent God, we are the ones who have fallen short. You know what that means, right? We're the ones that have sinned just as the world is sinning. That's the definition of sin, falling short of our true personhood. See, we need to see this. You know, we could learn so much from Christ and the apostles and the holy martyrs. And I've been reading them a lot for these last couple of years and in the face of everything that we're seeing around us as to how they represented God in the face of a world very much set against them, especially when you look at the Roman persecution of the church in the earliest of days from, what is that, 70? AD 70 on for those few hundred years. An entire nation had set itself against Christ and his people. And we can learn a lot about how they reveal Christ. So let's look at just a couple of things. Let's start with the apostles for a moment. Let's look at St. Paul and St. Silas from Acts in chapter 6. They're on their missionary journey. And of course, they are brought before the magistrates who put them on trial, have them beaten with rods, And then they both would receive, both Paul and Silas would receive the exact same flogging with the cat of nine tails as our Lord Jesus Christ received before his crucifixion. And you need to understand this. That beating with the cat of nine tails would would leave you with major physical difficulties the rest of your life. And then they're thrown into prison. Why? For being Christ to people. For representing Christ to the people in his nature. How did they respond? How did they respond? What we don't see is a shaking of the fist of their unjust treatment. We don't see that at all, not one whiff of it. Listen to what it says in Acts 16, verse 25. But at midnight, this is the midnight after they had been beaten so severely and torn apart, quite frankly, and thrown into prison, they're in physical agony. And at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying. They're facing God for everything they need in their suffering and they're singing hymns of praise to him that they were counted worthy to be treated as christ was treated that demonstrated the nature of god by the way we'd see so many saved as you look past that one event because of their continued disposition they ascended to him always and then descended to represent god saint peter Our Saint Peter and the apostles who were still in Jerusalem at the point that Acts chapter 5 takes place, they are in the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. He's continuing. Remember that whole deal where even when the shadow of Peter would fall on someone, Christ would heal? You talk about Christ being upon the rock pouring out living water everywhere that Peter went and the apostles went. And we see this. But guess what? The Jewish leaders of that time, this is before the Roman persecution, the Jewish leaders at that time bring them to court, and they beat them with rods, and they put them in prison. And then at their release, listen to their response. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then what did they do? They just went out and continued to be Christ. To everyone, to represent him. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. They represented Christ's nature perfectly in persecution, and they continued manifesting him and his kingdom to the world around them. And the result is so many would be baptized and saved and their lives would change. They would come out of the world and all of their broken ways and broken thinking, broken patterns and disorders, and they would come into the order of God. What about the martyrs under the Roman persecution of the church? You know, one of the things that always is staggering to me, I can't even, you cannot count how many testimonies there are of this. But when the martyrs were about to be fed to the lions or the animals or the gladiators or whatever it was, and there are so many testimonies where the Roman guards, they always offered the person that was going to be martyred a last choice, a last, what is your last request? And you know what? None of them said, I need a phone call because I need to call my lawyer because I'm being treated unjustly. You see, every last one of them, countless testimonies. You know what their last request was? Bring me Eucharist bring me Eucharist. I need to be face to face with my Lord. I need to take him into myself because I need his grace that he will give as I offer my life for him. It's amazing. You see the disposition. They knew Christ and they had become his nature and God had graced them. They didn't do this on their own. It's by that union. It's by that fellowship. I'm going to share one more example. And this is a specific example with you because we just celebrated his feast day last Wednesday at noon Mass, and it is the, it is the, the testimony of St. Venantius. St. Venantius was persecuted during the Roman persecution in the mid-A.D. two hundred, so the mid-third century. But here's what you don't know, and I'm telling you this because of how much even still I'm impacted by this. St. Venantius, what you don't know is he was 15 years old, my daughter's age. And at age 15, he had such the disposition and nature and hanging on to Christ and not wavering in his testimony of Christ saving him, that he gave himself up to one of the most brutal martyrdoms. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but I will mention a few things. Because what they did to him was a brutal torture, both by fire, beating him to the point where both of his jaw, they were out of socket and his teeth were gone, and then he ultimately would be fed to the lions. And so many of the faithful and non-Christians were present at his martyrdom. And you think in disgust at what they would have been seeing. And yet that's not the testimony of the day. You don't hear anybody speaking of that. The testimony of the day is this, that all the faithful in Christ that we're looking on grew significantly in faith because of the peace that was in this 15-year-old Venantius. Here he's being treated this way, but the peace of Christ is radiating through him. And his faith is, their faith was built so much and it needed to be because guess what? They would follow him in martyrdom shortly thereafter. 15 years old. That's not enough though. The testimony goes on. By his peacefully giving himself and offering his life for the Christ who he loved and knew loved him. You can't count how many unbelievers that day looked upon it by the experience of the nature of Christ and 15-year-old Venantius that went to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit and would later be martyred right with, right with the rest of them. You see this. You see this. This is representing Christ to the world. It doesn't mean we're going to be martyred. Who knows? But the point is what we're seeing is nothing less than what they saw back then in a world starting to collapse. And what the world is doing is shaking its fist at Jesus Christ. And we have got to remove the personal out of it to realize when the world is coming against what we think is our faith and the things that are most extremely important to us, when the world's coming against us, it's not. The world is coming against the Savior in us, you see? And what the world has to see and what God will work for his salvation is not Christians behaving like Hebrew zealots. Because I'm telling you right now, the testimony of the world to those who are acting like the zealots, they less believe in Christ than before they first met the Christian zealots. And they talk about this. And what you're not hearing me say is, there's ne- you never heard me say, there's never a time to speak. There's never a time to reveal. In season, when the Holy Spirit leads, we must. But that speech, that talk, those realities, the revelations God wants to reveal to us prophetically through his people to this world must be communicated. Through the nature of God. Through the nature of Christ. That is the only hope the world has of salvation. Make no mistake. You see? In conclusion, let me say this again. What I just shared with you is an impossibility without the face-to-face fellowship with the living God and are dedicating ourselves you can't tell me a 15 year old could have that impact on the world going through what he could go through what he would go through without having engaged that fellowship with God the same with the apostles the same Jesus Christ himself look what he look look how he represented himself you see all of these things are true we must have that fellowship only then can we receive everything we need to receive have his mind and operate from his nature, and only then will it be possible for what St. Seraphim of Sarov taught that should be our most true goal. I know you guys have this memorized by now. Acquire what? The spirit of peace, and what will happen? A thousand around you will be saved. The peace is not the absence of conflict. The peace is the peace that Jesus Christ is in the midst of it. And when we acquire that spirit, and we speak the revealed truths of God from that spirit, that's when thousands around us will be saved. We must know God. We must grow in knowing God. We must become transformed by that experience. And then we must turn, go into the world, and be what we have become, which is being him. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's close with that, and let's stand today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.